Isaiah chapter 25. Now our text tonight is lengthy. It runs from verse 6 down to verse 9. But let us read the text first of all, verses 6 then to 9 of Isaiah 25. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees, well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people, and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death and victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, of course, we need a title for the sermon upon this text that will capture the essence of the message. To that end, to get a title, there are three things that I would highlight. First of all, the Lord is very prominent in this text. He's named five times. The pronoun is abundantly referring to him. So the Lord has to get a mention, the Savior, the one who brings the salvation. And then the wretched state of sinners has to be highlighted. And particularly we could underline the word tears. Tears upon all faces. It's a world of tears and it's a people of tears. Needy sinners. Sinners in misery. And then we have to highlight the provision which God provides for miserable sinners. And we could focus on one expression to highlight that. Fat things. The Lord will make unto all people a feast of Fat things, the provision. So what we have in this message is the Savior's provision for sinners in their misery. These words that we're looking at tonight show three things. First of all, they show the need of sinners, the great want of this world. They highlight the wretchedness, the unhappy plight of humankind the need and then secondly these verses show the rich and wonderful grace of God his marvelous bounty and what he in his mercy and grace has provided for sinners in the gospel and then thirdly these verses show that there shall be a people who shall magnify and glorify this God, who shall partake of this provision and enjoy this bounty and bring all honor and glory to him who has brought it. So those are our three heads. First of all, then, the need of sinners is highlighted in our text. And there are at least four images in verses 6 through to 8. Images that imply our state, the 
need and the plight of sinners. In verse 6, there is the image of a famine. Because the Lord is providing a feast of fat things. And it's because there's a famine. Sinners need this feast. And then in verse 7, there is the image of darkness. Because there's a covering over sinners that brings darkness. And then in verse 8, there is death. The presence of death. Death that is lurking. Death that is lively and living. Prowling death. Reaping destruction in the earth. And then in verse 8 also there is the misery. Because all the faces are covered with tears. And there's profuse weeping. And that speaks of the misery of the people. So all of these images, they describe the plight of sinners. The condition of sinners. All of these images, they show we need the Savior. We need the Gospel. All of these show why man cannot save himself, but needs our salvation in a Savior. You see, mankind is very proud and arrogant. And humanity has this kind of self-conviction that they can save themselves, that they can redeem themselves, that they can make themselves right with God, that they can somehow meet all the needs of humanity, either by wisdom or effort or whatever. That somehow man can rise by himself out of his estate of suffering and misery. Mankind believes that. But these verses, they show that only a divine saviour can do it. That only the grace of God that bringeth salvation can accomplish the rising up and the restoration of humanity. Only God can do that. And not mankind himself. So men's need is not little. That's what we're saying tonight. And these verses show that. If God has to step in and give the provision, it shows that man's need is not tiny, not insignificant. It's great. It's so great, it requires a so great salvation from a so great Savior. What does our shorter catechism teach us concerning man's plight and man's condition? It says that the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. That's what man is in. An estate of sin and misery. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell. The sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell consists of the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it, the misery of a sinner with a sinful nature committing sins and transgressions in the bondage of his fallen nature. He can't save himself from that. And then what is the misery of that estate? 
Well, the misery is that all mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God. They lost fellowship with the Lord. They're under the divine wrath and curse. And they're made liable not only to the miseries and all the miseries in this life, but also to the wretchedness of the life that is to come in eternity. The pains of hell forever. So in those question and answers of the shorter catechism, we see the state of sin and misery and it is illustrated in these pictures in our text. In verse 6, the gospel is pictured as a provision, not for the rich. This feast, this table that God lays, this is a provision not for the rich, not for the righteous, but for the poor. That's the image. It's a provision for the poor, for the famished, for the starving and the thirsty, for poor sinners. The Bible says the poor have the gospel preached to them. And that's the need of sinners. Their poverty requires this table for God to set out for them to participate at for their need. You see, Adam, in his unfallen state, had no need for a gospel table. He had no need for a feast of fat things. He had communion with God. He had all that he needed in the Garden of Eden. He had all fruits. Adam had a table in the Eden that was full, that was blessed. All trees, all fruits of the field, everything was available. Not only for his body, but also for eternal life. Because in the midst of the garden, there was a tree of life. He had it all. He had access to it all. There was no famishing of Adam. There was no thirst for Adam. He had it all in the provision of Eden, in the state of paradise. Only one tree was forbidden. And the foolish infant human race took of it. The one tree that they ought not to do. And humanity was driven out, driven out from the garden, driven out from this table, this fur laid by God for them in their innocency, driven out and driven out with a spiritual starvation that mankind has had ever since. So Eden was closed up and that table was removed. Yes, they had food for the body, that is true, to sustain a short life on earth. But even that, they had to work for and dig for and sweat for, that they may obtain that sustenance for the body out of the cursed ground. But even that did not sustain their life forever and die they must. And the eternal life, there was no food that provided it. There was no meat unto eternal life for Adam and Eve because the tree was closed up and now sinners descended from Adam and Eve are perishing with spiritual starvation. And the bodily life is sapping away. And the place where there is not even a drop of water lurks not too far ahead down the road. Not a drop of water in eternity. 
That's how famished the human race is. Not a drop of water for the soul in eternity. Not even a drop of water to cool the inflamed, tormented tongue. Not a drop. Not a face. But the worm that dieth not. Sinners have a spiritual dearth. A spiritual barrenness. No spiritual life. No spiritual nourishment. Hungering and thirsting all the while. And trying to satisfy that at the world's table. Because the world and the Satan, they put out a table. They put up many tables. A man eats at it and tries to satisfy the spiritual longing. Tries to satisfy the soul, but it's all in vain. The world has vanity fur. It sets out tables of all kinds of things to feed the world. But one thing is missing. The truth of God. The word of God. As Isaiah said, they feed on ashes. Ashes. All burnt up. All the goodness, the sustenance gone. Just ashes. As another prophet said, they feed on wind. The vanity of it. The emptiness of it. The non-satisfaction from it. No matter how much they feed on the ashes, no matter how much they feed on the wind, never satisfied, never having life eternal, never quenched their thirst, never contented, but hungering and thirsting still, like the prodigal who went into a far country, spent all that he had in riotous living, and began to be in want. And he fain would have fed and filled himself with the husks with the swine did eat. And sinners are spending their money for that which does not satisfy, and for that which is not bread. So there is the famishing sinners. And then verse 7 shows the plate is also one of utter darkness. Because we read that in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. The plight of sinners is that veil is over them. They are not only feeding at tables of woe. And we might well ask why do they feed at tables of woe? Why do they feed on ashes? Why do they feed on wind? Why in their folly do they go on in this vain pursuit to satisfy their longings? Why do they eat up sin and drink iniquity? It's because they've been covered with a blanket. They've been covered with a veil and it's darkness. And the light is kept out and they're under the darkness they're in the darkness, the thick darkness, and they don't see. They can't see that it is but ashes. They can't see that it is but wind. They can't see that it does not satisfy because they are as blind men in the darkness. It's not a great description of sinners. Those sinners that you pray for in their darkness, and they don't see their folly and they don't realize it. It's because of the darkness. There's a blanket over them. 
There's a veil that has been pulled right over their heads. And there they are. A covering. A darkness. A keeping out the light. And it's a thick darkness that can be felt. So that not a ray of gospel light shines in. Not a twinkle of promise. And it's a universal veil because what does the text say? Over all people. And the veil that is spread over all nations. It covers the whole world. It covers multitudes and nations. Israel and Palestine tonight are blanketed with violence. But they're also under a blanket of darkness. Both nations. A veil of darkness. Israel and the rest of us too. It's the same. Without the gospel. Jew or Gentile. Without the intervention of Jesus Christ, all nations under darkness. And this veil has been cast over the nations. And of course, the casting over uh, speaks of someone who does that, who casts it, who has covered them. And we might think, who has done that? Would God allow that? Would God allow such a thing, his created world? Would he allow a veil to be cast over it? A veil of darkness? Yes, he has allowed it. He did allow it. Because Adam, he left the light. And leaving the light, darkness is the reaping. And darkness is cast over in the righteous judgment of Almighty God. Men love darkness. So God, as it were, let the blanket be pulled over them in their love for that darkness. This darkness is a very significant part of their misery. Darkness that sinners need to be saved from. And we can feel that darkness in this world in which we live. Don't we see the darkness of the age? Don't we see it? The thick darkness that covers sinners? The veil has been cast off us in the grace of God, but we can see that it still covers sinners and a sick darkness and so thick that we even feel the thickness of it as it pushes against us, though we have gospel light. The blindness of their heart, the Bible talks about. Darkness, the ignorance that is in them. The understanding darkened, the Bible says. And even Christians, before they were converted, Paul had to say, ye were sometimes darkness, but now light in the Lord. And this, to a large extent, of course, is the devil's blanket. And a veil is a cozy thing. It does bring darkness, but it also brings a coziness, and sinners like the coziness of the veil. Uh, sinners are made comfy by the devil, while all the while he darkens them. So cozy that they live in the darkness. So cozy that they continue in the darkness. So cozy that they go to the parties in the darkness. So cozy that they go to the dance and the dance of pleasure in the darkness. Coziness. All the while in the darkness. How miserable is their plight then? Perish they will too. Unconcerned, unafraid, dying in the darkness because they don't even see the danger that they're in. And in this darkness, and in this 
famine, there lurks a beast, death. Death lurks because the Lord has to swallow up death in victory. And there is the state of death into which sinners fall. And sinners are dying and they're going to the grave. Death roams. This beast roams the whole earth. This beast consumes all humanity. This beast consumes every sinner. A devouring beast. Because as by one man sin entered into the world. And so also death. And death passed upon all men. For that all has sinned. How it swallows men up we know very well. Like the fish swallowed Jonah. Brings them down into the depths and into the darkness. A darkness even darker than life itself. As he goes into the depths of death. Death feeds on humankind. And it must soon consume us all. This beast. How horrible, how fearful, how terrible is that monster. That we must face. And eventually seizes each one of us. Oh, the misery of death, the misery of dying. As this beast is faced, and the even more terrible misery of going into a lost eternity in the grip of its teeth from under a covering taken by this beast into the even greater blackness of the outer darkness of hell forever. The misery of sinners. The misery of the perishing. And verse 8 also shows that there are tears upon all faces. We're all sinners prone to the miseries of this life. And we all have faces that are damp with tears. Faces filled with tears. Tears profusely falling from all faces. Is not what it says there. All faces. Tears because of sadness. Tears because of darkness. Tears because of death. Tears because of troubles. Tears because of the thorns of the curse that we so often feel. Tears because of crimes and criminal actions. Either wrought against us or by us. Tears because of the sins that we commit sorrows abundant and tears many think of all the tears of war think of all the tears that have fallen in Israel and Palestine think of all the tears that come because of the depravity of men think of the tears of the Holocaust the Jews have tears the Gentiles have tears we are all the same. All mankind has lost communion with God. And all mankind is liable to the miseries of this life. This is a world of tears. As it is a world of darkness. It begins in tears. It ends in tears. And throughout all eternity tears. Weeping and wailing. Tears of despair. This is all that sinners have to look forward to. This is the plight of humankind. And only the grace of God. 
can change it. That's the teaching of the text. Only the grace of God. And that's what mainly is in these verses. The marvelous intervention of the divine in grace. Showing his rich provision in the gospel and through his son Jesus Christ our Lord. So the images are not so much images of the plight of men, though that is implied in the text, but they are images of the bounty of God. And all the verbs are what God does. How God provides, how God pulls away, as it were, the veil. All of the images are God in Christ Jesus, working for the deliverance of poor sinners and the restoration of humanity unto the life eternal. And so in verse 6, we have the gospel feast pictured. In this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, wines on the lees, well refined. That's the salvation provision in Jesus Christ for perishing sinners. And it's the Lord's provision. The Lord will make unto all people a feast of fat things. This is the only answer. The Lord furnishing the table of the gospel. The Lord coming in grace to perishing sinners. This is the only answer. The fat things of the divine truth for sinners. And so it's the Lord's fur, the Lord's table. He has made it. He has put the food thereupon. And it's for all people. Did you see that? The Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things. It's a banquet for multitudes. It's a banquet for the sinners. It's sufficient. Fat things. Fat things of marrow. Feast of lees. All well refined. Well provided for. Plenty. Abundant. Well prepared. Without uncleanness. Without scarcity. A feast for sinners. In Jesus Christ. And all sinners have to do is to come. All things are now ready. The Lord says and the gospel preacher says. All things are now ready. Come. Come to the gospel feast. Everyone that thirsteth come ye. Come ye to the waters. He that hath no money. Come. Come ye. Buy. Buy and eat. Yea come. Buy wine and milk. Without money. Without price. Come. The invitation is large. The sinner can say as he comes in faith to Jesus Christ and to the gospel, my soul shall be satisfied. At last, satisfied. Not satisfied at the table of the world. Not satisfied with the pleasures of time. But at last, in Christ and in the gospel, my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. Here it is, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. And Christ is on the table. And on the table there is meat indeed and drink indeed. Because on the table there is the broken body of our Redeemer Jesus Christ. 
who gave his body for the life of the world and who shed his blood for the sustenance of the sinner. My body is meat indeed, he says. My blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my body and drinketh my blood hath everlasting life. The life lost is restored in the eating and drinking of the body and blood of Jesus Christ by faith in the gospel. And so none need perish, for in the sacrifice he hath provided eternal life, and all who believe on him have that life eternal. And none need perish. You see, God has provided it. Sinners come. Come to Christ. And then he's taken the darkness away because it says in this same mountain, he will destroy. Again, this is God. Only God can do it. Only God can destroy the face of the the covering that's cast over all nations. Only God can destroy the veil. And the veil was rent in two from the top to the bottom. The covering was removed. The covering was dealt with in the cross of Jesus Christ. That covering has been pulled back and light has been brought into our world by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, if Christ had not come, if Christ had not died, if Christ had not risen, and if the apostles had not gone into all the earth, what darkness! But in that mountain of Zion, the light has gone forth because Christ has pulled back the veil in the sacrifice of himself. And now the light has come, the Bible says. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel. And we can arise and shine and reflect that light in our life and in our witness as we ought to do. The way into the holiest is now made manifest because the veil has been rent and the light has entered and the way is seen and we know how to come and we know where to come even to Christ. What does Paul say? Now is made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And he mentions also what God has done with death, which also occurs in this image, abolished death. Death has been dealt with. That which dealt with the darkness, that which dealt with the famine, that deals with death also. The same God, the same Savior, the same work in the same place on this mountain. This is the work that has dealt with death. And so Satan, who held death's power, he thought in his hand as he crucified the Lord of glory, even in his blind ignorance, and in doing so, he destroyed himself. And Christ destroyed him who had the power of death. He destroyed Satan. And he has abolished death. 
and brought light and life into the open now. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And that's what is referred to in our text. And it's been done in Christ. And of course it has to find a final consummation at the resurrection from the dead whenever it finally is robbed of all the prey that it had consumed, utterly made sick, and its people in a swear redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so death is dealt with, as darkness is dealt with, and as a famine is dealt with through Jesus Christ, and all the tears upon all faces at the last are wiped away. After the abolishment of death, after the resurrection of the dead, and the new faces of the new humanity come to light in the new day, not a tear, not a sorrow, not a sigh, because in this mountain also God has set forth the provision of his divine handkerchief whereby he wipes all tears from off all faces and all the sorrows are forgotten and they're all gone and now it's eternal bliss and everlasting joy. The lamb in the midst of the throne feeding them, leading them onto fountains of waters yet at the same time wiping away all tears from their eyes. How many tears we have. Don't we just sit and mope sometimes and remember and recall and we just say, God will wipe away all tears from off our faces. Because this is what the gospel does. This is what Christ does. This is what this Redeemer does. I want you to notice that the Lord does all of this. He destroys the face of the covering. He swallows up death. He wipes away the tears. He makes unto all people a face. I want you to notice where he does it. In the mountain. In this mountain. It's emphasized. What mountain is this? Well, Zion's mountain is clearly referred to. And if we must take it literally, and some like to take it literally in time and space, then if we take it literally, I think we must come to Calvary. Because that's the only thing that ever happened in that mountain that did, dealt with it. The cross. The cross at Calvary. The cross on the hills of Zion. The mountain of the cross work of Jesus Christ. But I don't take it as, as literal. I take it as the Zion above that is referred to. To the hill of the Lord, to the Zion at God's right hand where Christ is. There's where it's dealt with. There where the living Redeemer is enthroned. He's the one who deals with it all and has done so in his death and resurrection. And there he is. On the hill of the Lord ascended up. We've come to this in Hebrews chapter 12. We're not come to Sinai. We're come to Zion. The blood of sprinkling. The mediator at the right hand of God. That's the mountain where the victor is. That's the mountain where our saviour is. Where he reigns and lives in the power of an endless life. Feeding us. Taking away our darkness. Bringing us into the liberty of the gospel. 
Christ, Christ at the right hand of God, Christ who descended that mountain, who came down in the incarnation and who made the ascent up again into that mountain for us sinners. It's that mountain. We'll never look again to the mountain in Jerusalem, in, in Israel. Some people want to look there. The church of Jesus Christ looks to the Mount Zion. That's where we've come. Hebrews 12. We've come unto that. And so that's the proper interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures. And lastly, and very quickly, there shall be a people who shall magnify and glorify this God. A people who will enjoy this provision. A people who will partake of it and receive the life eternal and the table laid who will have the light of the gospel and not the darkness of the world of wickedness and woe who will have the provision not only of the light but also of the joy of the Lord and the removing of all the tears and they will glorify God how they will glorify God. What does it say there in verse 9? It shall be said in that day, Lo, this, this is our God. We have waited for him. He will save us. This is the one who saves us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. We'll be glad and we'll rejoice in him. We'll rejoice in his salvation. Do you see how they're filled with joy? They've been taken from the darkness. They've been taken from the beast's death. They've been given the feast of the gospel, the feast of fat things. They've had the tears removed by the handkerchief of Jesus Christ. And they're just beaming to say, this is him. This is our God. This is our Redeemer. This is the one who did it all in his grace. We're joined in his grace. We were such miserable sinners. Oh, wretched and miserable sinners that we were. But this is him. We've waited for him. We've looked for him. We've trusted in him. Our eyes have ever been towards him, looking on to Jesus. This is him. Oh, how they'll glorify and magnify him in that day. As we endeavor to do even now in the church. This is our Savior. We glorify him. We honor him. We magnify him. He's the one who laid the table for us. He's the one who removed the veil in his death. He's the one who swallowed up death. He's the one who brings us into the rest. He's the one who dries our tears. This is him. Him alone. No one else. And so we glorify our Savior our Redeemer. Unto us belongs confusion, the bowing of heads, the smiting of breasts, but unto him belongs the glory of his grace. And to him alone be all glory.